Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, this is Dan Ziegler. I'm the CEO and founder of YCDV, a global brand consulting firm, uh, tactical strategist, classic polymath, and I run, a, I run a coaching business where I coach CEOs around the world as well. I'm honored to spend an hour with you today on our beautiful Valentine's Day edition, where we're going to talk about lots of things that I find uh, interesting in the world and the passions that drive us. Uh, I'm honored to be spending some time with our host, Jonathan Bowen-Perks. Over to you, Jonathan. Thank you very much indeed. And Dan, it was lovely. It was Brian J. Esposito who uh, appeared on the series and he said, you're going to have to have Dan on. He's such a ball of fire. And you certainly are. I, I've been, really enjoyed our conversations. The one we had a few weeks ago is a warm up to this. And then just before we, uh, we came on air, uh, I find there's so much wisdom and experience you have and a fun of life, uh, a sense of making the most of it. So tell us a bit about some of the things you've been doing in the last couple of years. Uh, and then we'll go back to childhood, Dan. Sure. So in the last couple of years, uh, I have uh, really honed the, the, the message of YCDB, what it means to me, um, what the philosophy is, and divided into two sections. Uh, the first uh, is more of a personal statement, you can do better, and it's mirror facing. It's me looking in the mirror and saying each morning to myself, what am I going to do differently today to do better? Active listening, maintain a level of humility, be more heart-centered, get out of my own head. And, and how do I then impart that into the coaching that I do with CEOs and executives around the world? One of them in particular uh, is a dynamic young CEO from a, uh, an upstart startup company called B-Mobile, which is in the micro-mobility business. And Brian and I have gotten together on a couple of these. That's how we met each other. And so it's really empowering for me to impart knowledge and wisdom to younger generations of individuals when they're receptive to it. And so the coaching side of my business, uh, you can do better is about personal growth and development. And then there's brand strategy and tactical development on You Can Dream Bigger, another acronym for YCDB, um, where I work with companies and teams and brands on what their next vision is. We work on ideation and strategy and tactics moving forward. And that runs the gamut. Um, uh, as we'll talk in this conversation, I've spent many, many years uh, in the performance marketing industry, media industry, uh, recognizing hundreds of brands at my disposal and with 400 trade shows under my belt, uh, I've had a deep level of access to brands across uh, industries. Mm. And so I pick and choose the ones that drive me the best and which ones I think I mesh with and my particular brand of coaching and consulting. And I look for clients that are receptive uh, to recognizing and understanding what I bring to the table. Yeah, you're so right. Cause it is about a, a connection, trust. Uh, it's about uh, co-creation, so you can bounce off each other. I know you talk about ideation, where you know there's lots of ideas, and you can you can really work together to build something more than the person would do on their own or with another advisor. And what about if we take you back to Dan as a child? Um, you had um, quite a 
profoundly shaping childhood, but, but what was the influence of your parents and their background and where they came from and grandparents? Tell us a bit about that, because I found that very interesting. Thank you. It, 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 was, uh, it was interesting and boring for the first half of childhood up until about 16 years old, you know, living in Long Island, New York, uh, upper middle class suburbia, uh, pretty normal existence, except I had a mathematical genius of a father who worked really, really hard to provide for his family and was on the cutting edge of some technology in the UPC code uh, or data industry way back when, back in the late 70s, early 80s. And so he spoke a different language, Fortran, Cobalt, Pasquale, you know, all these different machine code languages. And so we would have small little conversations about what the future looks like. And so at a very early age, I had a dreamer and a futurist as a father who would constantly come back from his travels discussing what's coming next and what the world will look like. Everything from RFID technology and uh, what these barcodes are gonna do for the supermarket business. Um, and then I had a wonderful mother who cared deeply for her three boys and gave us a loving home. And we shared experiences and had very open dialogue. And there was really no topic of conversation that was off the table. Um, lots of grandparents, lots of families, holiday dinners, um, half Jewish, half Sicilian, so lots of food, which we'll talk a little bit about in our conversation. And then the world created a cavernous hole in it and swallowed up my entire life. My father, unfortunately, away on a business trip at 44 years old, he was physically incapable of surviving his one and only heart attack and was gone in about a minute and a half, as the paramedics said. And so it was a massive, massive cardiac arrest, no defibrillators in 1985 in the office where he was working and he was gone. And so yeah. first half 16 was one tumultuous experience after another as a standard child, you just struggle through life and you figure things out. And then everything else changes from 16 forward. And I knew you and I talked briefly about the loss of a father and what that really means to a, to a young boy um, and the impact and how it becomes part of our story or it becomes our story. Yeah, um, I, I chose to make a part of my story. And mm. so lots of positive influences um, surrounded me. And I think it was those uh, paternal and maternal individuals that surrounded our family that kept me from going to the dark side um, and, you know, going, going yeah. off the house or so. I'm, I'm really sorry that your father died at such an early, early age. I mean, um, I think you said he was 44. My own yeah. father was 33 when he died, when I was two and a half. And, and, and you don't really get over it, but you need to get over it because otherwise it defines you. And I remember the naval officer who said to me, you know, you can be a victim, poor me, or you can make your father your inspiration to do the work that you do, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing and you're doing what you're doing. But was I right in understanding that, that also you had a, quite a problem around this time of a loss of mobility? Was I picking that up? Yes. So... Um... Uh, at 14, uh, I was an overactive husky, as they like to call us, youth. <laughs> Had a few extra pounds on me from all that good eating. Um, and I was uh, involved in sports. Um, I had a torn uh, hip joint, not to get too medical or too specific, um, but I tore the growth line in my hip and I was misdiagnosed uh, at the local hospital because I felt the pain in my knees. And so they sent me home on crutches and it turned out for three weeks, I continued to walk on this, this, this hip. Um, almost to the point of, uh, I don't, I passed out. They got me back to the hospital and said, let's x-ray his hips. Um, 
the bottom line was I had done irreparable damage to my hip. Uh, and luckily for my father and his insurance companies and the good medical you know, uh, history of uh, Boston Pediatrics um, flew down to New York and they pinned my hip in place. And so I spent weeks in traction and weeks in the hospital and then months at home in a wheelchair, um, living in the first floor of my house instead of back upstairs in my bedroom. And then months of physical therapy and rehabilitation, learning how to walk again. You know, they basically cut my thigh open and put in, you know, six and a half inch, you know, four screws and screwing my hip together. And I was told at that moment in time, there's a fairly high likelihood that I won't walk normally. Um, I won't ever really run. Um, most sports are now off the table. And so an inflection point at 14, um, that wasn't really realized till much later on. It was, woe is me. It was wallow in self-pity. It was a constant doldrum at 14 of, I can't believe I can't go to camp and I can't play football and I can't wrestle and I can't ski. Um, but again, it was, um, it's a life lesson that I look back on today and recognize it happened for me, not to me. Yeah. And, and I'm really sorry that what you went through and I, and I, I'm interested to hear about, was there a connection between that and then your father dying and, and the two overlapping? I, I can't remember anything from that early years of when my father died, whether that was my body's way of coping with things, but just memory completely blanked out. But um, I was listening to the book, um, the, the 15 Commitments of uh, Conscious Leadership. Uh, and in it, they were talking about, some people talk about to me, things are done to me, you know, the sort of the victim mentality, this is not fair, this was done to me, what would I do, you know, torn hip and my father dying and all this kind of stuff. Or, or by me that I can have more control of what goes in or that things work through me. This is where, you know, this stage of how you coach and advise and help people around the world. And it sounds much more now it's through me, but maybe at that time it was to me. I don't know what your thoughts are. Oh, you're right. Oh, it was to me. I, I, was, I was an inconsolable, angry youth who hated the world, um, turned away from religion, you know, nice young Jewish boy from Long Island, you know, had the temple and the rabbis and, you know, did the bar mitzvah and had all the friends and the trappings and the circles of influence. Once my father died, my mother was inconsolable. My older brother, uh, try as he might, was away at college. My younger brother at 13 was insulated in some way, some way, shape or form. And here I am thrust into, you know, reviewing the merger and acquisitions and the venture capital and the mortgage repayments and the life insurance policies with an inconsolable mother who had just lost the love of her life. I was angry at the world. Um, I took on, you know, way too much responsibility and drove too fast, worked too hard and uh, went to the dark side for quite a while. You know, uh, being a child of Star Wars, you know, it was easy to see that there was the trappings of being, you know, learning how to smoke and driving fast and getting in trouble because it brought you attention, right? And it, I, I owe a debt of gratitude to uh, a, one particular teacher and then the guidance counselors, as they call them here in the US uh, at my high school, who saw a troubled youth that never got in trouble before slipping away. And they, they did what they were paid to do. They mm. interceded and they said, hey, we have some suggestions to make. Um, we, we need to get you out of this environment and maybe direct some of that anger and attention towards a vocation. And so I know, well, we talked a little bit about what I, what my vocation is and what my education was, but it, I was blessed that they gave me an opportunity to attend the first um, uh, 
curriculum-based technical college for high school students in the world of culinary arts. And so I got to focus my attention into a passion where I learned how to cook. I mean, uh, growing up Jewish and Sicilian, you're cooking all the time, but really honing that attention and that anger and the, and the, and the, I harbored a lot of ill will towards people because I looked at them as, you know, you have a father and I don't, you have these things that I don't. And so I think it was the kitchen that gave me my first inflection point where I, I saw I could go in a different direction. And so it was, it was, it was there where I learned how to uh, uh, begin to stabilize who I am as a person. Mm. Yeah, that is really quite profound and, and also really helpful that you understood and that understand now looking back what was going on for you and often at the time we don't understand what's going on for us um i am interested in you know you, you've had a lot of experiences already at that stage having had a great run-up to that moment of 14 to 16 period but um in your whole of your life what's been your happiest proudest moment and what's been your darkest moment and what have you learned from both of those if you haven't already mentioned them. Yeah, the darkest we've talked about, you know, there's nothing darker than the loss of a parent at a young age, um, aside from maybe the loss of a child. And uh, thank God I've never experienced that. So we'll leave the darkness alone. Um, you know, in professional life, uh, there's lots of dark times, right? Um, you shared in some of your other conversations about being cheated. Well, in business, um, you have two choices. You can go in with an air of naivete and recognize that your professionalism might be taken advantage of or your naivete might be. And I have, I, I'm, uh, I'm uh, no different. Um, I have had terrible business partners in my past. I have had opportunities of financial ruin presented to me. I have uh, gotten to the precipice with business partners and recognized that this is not the path I wanna go down and learned from them. I think it's BC Forbes, um, the impetus for the Forbes uh, publishing empire who said, it's often better to be occasionally cheated than perpetually suspicious. And so I became perpetually cautious. Mm -hmm. um, some of the proudest moments for me personally uh, is what every coach and consultant um, and introvert turned extrovert wants. Recognition, of course. Um, we want to be recognized for the things that we do well. Not, not so much so as I need the applause of the crowd, right? Um, I used to think I did. But quiet recognition everybody wants a pat on the back. I was no different. Um, I think what I learned though, is that um, I didn't need to live in the recognition. I just needed to uh, acquire it, recognize it for what it is, be appreciative of it, and then move on with continuing to be who I am versus living in title. I think I, uh, I have lots of milestones in my professional career in lots of different industries that anyone would be, would be honored to have one of them. And I've accumulated quite a few. I think the challenge for someone like myself is that I lived in the accomplishment as a as sort of a, uh, a shield. This is who I am. I'm Dan the CEO, I'm Dan the executive chef, I'm Dan the number one salesman in the world for a major automotive company, or I'm the rookie of the year for a major real estate empire. And instead I should have just recognized, I think you said rule six, yeah, that's right. Don't take yourself too damn seriously. Yeah. I didn't do that for probably 30 no. years of my life. I didn't. Yeah. Do that. And so I've learned if we're talking about proud moments in life, I think I've learned in the last 20 some odd years, rule six needs to apply more often. Yeah. 
that's, that's a lovely one. Um, and the other thing I was interested in from all your experiences is a bit of advice if you could go back to the future and give yourself a bit of sound advice at the age of 14 to 16, which was so turbulent for you. Uh, knowing what you know now, with all the wisdom, and you've read widely and you've been involved with Mind Valley and all these kind of organizations and uh, probably gone out into the desert with Burning Man and done weird things and stuck on your head. And like me doing my uh, ayahuasca in Peru later in May, you've probably had all these different experiences. But what is a bit of advice you'd give to a young man today, which you wish you'd given to yourself? Like, don't worry about this, but do focus on that. What would have been relevant for you, Dan? Thank you. No Burning Man yet. No Burning Man. I've been invited. I was supposed to spend my 50th there, but um, uh, but lots of other introspective journeys. Let me, did I say I was a chef and there was some, you know, there was some uh, things. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, number one, stay healthy. Um, I, I think the, um, my mother used to say her greatest regret was not, um, was not having an autopsy just so that we knew, we definitively knew exactly genetically, you know, was there something there, but that was years ago. And so with modern technology and advancements in science and, and my, my willingness to see cardiologists and do stress tests and whatever, main, maintaining good heart health, at least I know, you know, is gonna give me the peace of mind of knowing. Because to go backwards to that 16 year old child, um, at 17, to maybe 26, I was on a path to hurry up and die. I was not gonna make it to 44. I am a clone genetically of my father. Um, I'm the closest one, you know, I was following in the same trappings and pathways. And so I think if I could give advice to a young 14 or 16 year old, uh, aside from rule six, don't take yourself too seriously, uh, it would absolutely work on health. And, and that includes food. And we'll talk a little bit about it, but uh, there's a line that sticks with me I don't remember who said it, but it goes like this. Food is medicine now, or medicine becomes food later. Yes, that is so good. Dan, I mean, great advice. And, and also you've tapped into something which I'm fascinated by and passionate by, and my wife might even say obsessive by. In my dyslexia, as you know, my reading is listening to audiobooks, and I've listened to about 20 on the topic of the microbiome, health, well-being, um, what you eat, what you shouldn't eat. Um, a couple of books I've enjoyed recently, Food, What the Fuck Should I Eat? or WTF Should I Eat? by uh, Dr. Mark Hyman, which is a really good read uh, or a good listen because he, he's, a, he's a good speaker. And the other one is Spoon Fed. Um, by uh, Professor Tim Spector. And, and Tim, it's, it's quite a current one. I think it's only about a year old. And he's saying a lot of the things that we thought were true are now myths, but they've carried on with the myths and the danger of the food industry. And so, and all the things about inflammatory lifestyles and food that is infl inflammatory to you and the importance of the microbiome. And Tim's got this connection with Zoe, which is this organization which takes sample of your um, gut microbiome and then tells you what for Dan is good for Dan because there isn't an average. We're not all the same. Oh. As we know with Inuits eating blubber and guys in the forest eating nuts and berries, we're all different and, and we need to do the right thing for the right gut so that our health span matches our lifespan because in America and in the UK and many other countries, 
we all, uh, there's far too many people, a very high proportion, for the last 16 years of their life, they have one or two critical illnesses which will kill them. And um, I'm determined that that isn't me. And having seen, as you know, my, my brother die uh, of metastatic cancer, I want to minimize that. That's why I do the intermittent fasting and various things like that. But um, you've, you've touched on something very interesting, Dan. Any, any thoughts that come up from what I've just said? Uh, truth, you speak it. Um, uh, I spent many years uh, understanding evidence-based eating after decades of carving, roasting, braising, grilling, barbecuing, every little creature known to man. I made a conscious decision to try something uh, for my wife. We said, let's try SOS for 30 days, no salt, no oil, no sugar, and let's see what happens. And I can tell you the effects in the first 30 days for a broken, physically broken individual like myself was exactly what you just discussed, Jonathan. The lack of inflammation for the first time in my life was so rampant. My, I literally decreased hip pain and knee pain and swelling and it was amazing what happens when we remove sugars and, and so SOS, and then we moved into plant-based and we were experimenting during a phase of plant-based eating and we went full vegan for a mm -hmm. year and a half. Mm -hmm. um, Me too. And then we went, you know, then we, we started adding different proteins and adding fish back into our diet. I still have not, it's probably been seven years. I can honestly tell you, I haven't ordered beef in a restaurant in seven years. Um, I rarely ever, you know, eat it at home, um, but there are other, you know, proteins and we do balance, you know, everything is about balance. Um, I, I think what you said comes true for someone who loved food. You know, there are people that eat to live and there are people that live to eat, right? Um, I looked at food as there are no bad foods, simply inappropriate amounts. And that is true right up until you're about 30. Because <laughs> once you're past 30, there are bad foods. There are foods that should never cross your lips again. Yeah, and, and this is where having had, um, whether it be um, people from the Coca-Cola company or people from big food pressing, uh, processing companies, I, I do give them a mildly hard time because I go, look, you know, we know sugar is not good for us. Why are we cramming so much into these carbonated drinks? Right. Oh, but it's part of a balanced diet and it's choice. No, no, <laughs> we're all the addicts of sugar. And, and you're just feeding the addicts more sugar. How can we stop doing this? And also the ultra high processed foods that, that people have yeah. are not good for us. There is not good for it. So I'm now finding that I'm in such better shape and health and well-being through eating whole foods and lots of vegetables. And like you, I went through a vegan phase for about a year, year and a half, but then brought back in certain, certain things. And that's why I found Spoon Fed by Tim Spector so interesting about some of the problems with fish because of, you know, various things like, um, uh, you know, the, the various things that grow on fish. And then you have to put the antibiotics in there and kill off the, the, uh, the, the sea slugs and stuff that stick to them. And, uh, and so a, a small amount of protein, chicken and, and, and a little bit of fish and a little, a little bit of grass fed beef rather than corn fed beef and then organic uh, I, everything I try and have is organic now. I, I think it's a whole very interesting area. Thank you for that, Dan. Let's just go around, trip around the Inspiring Leadership Compass with your experiences, beginning with MQ, the, the true north of the needle. Um, your values and beliefs from your experiences and your upbringing, what, what are your top three 
that you found have served you well as your values and principles you live by and you work by? Thank you. Um, first is authenticity, which comes from a foundation of truthfulness. Um, um, my father was, you know, uh, active participant in his three boys uh, for as long as he was alive and had imparted certain nuggets of wisdom that to this day stick with each of us. For me, um, being the middle son, um, my father said, don't lie. I, of course, said, why? And he gave a very um, childlike answer to a child, which has stuck with me. And he said, when I said why to his statement of don't lie, um, he said, because they're just too hard to keep track of. And it just made sense. And so being authentic and being, you know, someone who tells the truth um, or doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, speak about something they don't know about is important to me. And so I'm okay now for many years, I wasn't, but I'm okay now saying, I don't know something or I want to learn more. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about strength finder assessment and input and knowledge, how I'm starved for knowledge and input, which is why I gravitate towards so many different industries. And I just like a sponge. So I'm constantly in a state of learning. Um, people don't care, uh, you know, if, if you're not good at something, but they do care if you're inauthentic. Um, uh, I, it took a long time for me to balance um, confidence against cockiness or assertiveness against arrogance. Mm. And for decades, I was telling myself that I was just simply confident. And it turns out it was cocky and arrogance as a defense mechanism, where now it's just how do we invite humility into our life? So I live by those principles of authenticity and honesty and humility as much as possible. Remember, YCDB, you can do better. It's a mirror-facing mantra. It's the whisper in my ear that my wife told me when she saw me living up here and she saw me being inauthentic or she saw me embellishing in conversation in public in circles where I would hold court and she would whisper, you know, you can do better. You didn't have to go that extra. You didn't have to layer on or gild the lily, you know, in a, in a dialogue just to impress people, which we all do. Yeah. I, I, I took that to heart and turned it into a philosophy, which turned into a company. So I, I honor a yeah. fab. So well, uh, I think your wife fab is spot on. And my wife Lee is often spot on with me where she will catch me just overdoing, over-indexing certain things. I just ask. Why do you need to do that? And, and I remember uh, vividly uh, had a sales meeting with a partner in one of the big firms, KPMG or somewhere like that. And um, uh, I, I chatted with them, made a good connection. It was good to see them again. We'd met before. And then I oversold. I just just like pushed it too hard. That wasn't what he wanted. And, and I could see him visibly back away. And just like you can't overdo things, just over index it. And rather than be really interested with the person, you're pushing too much of your own agenda. And I did that occasion when the guy backed off, never bought from me, never, never interacted again. And, and I just I remember it vividly. It stays with me. So my brother, had, my, my, just on one note, my, my brother gave me an expression. My brother's a f phenomenal, phenomenal human being, but also an extremely talented salesman. And uh, in his own in his own right, and I'm going to make a recommendation uh, to get him on here uh, because of his life journey and, and the areas where you know top 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 salesman in the world and consultant and fascinating human being. And my older brother showed told me, stop selling past the clothes, Ziegler. You're selling past the clothes. 
and that was something I was famous for. Um, mm. This is is selling past what the the customer was already. I, I'd already won you over. There was no need. Yeah. And, and and so I catch myself and we talked before our call. I said, you know, rein me in, Jonathan, so that yeah. I don't sell past the question. Or uh, well, it, it, it's it's really good. And and there's some need in us to, you know, that, that American friend of mine in the military said, first, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to tell you what I told you. And, and I, whoa, too much. But it, it can be too much of a sort of mantra. And it's almost an insecurity that we feel we have to sell ourselves rather than be really interested in them. So they buy us. And I, I do remember this idea that misguided idea that salesmen have that it's all about meetings. I, you know, that, that famous conversation between two salesmen, salesman A says to B, I've had some great meetings today. And the other guy says, yeah, I didn't sell anything either. You know, that's like, it's, it's just so lovely. I love some of the sayings that come from it. Let's go from MQ and uh, yeah, I'd be interested to have a chat with your brother to PQ. Um, purpose question, what gives your life meaning and purpose, Dan? Why have you done what you've done, but now why are you doing what you're doing? That sense of purpose every day in what you do. Sure, um, great question. Um, ideation, first and foremost, it's my number one strength. And it's the thing that I love the most to help people flourish and grow and develop and nurture ideas. Um, the second, the other side of YCDB is you can dream bigger, right? And it's about fostering that spark you know, of creativity and so getting in down and dirty into what ideation really means and how to build a concept and idea that someone may shudder away is improbable or impossible. Um, I'm there to nurture those ideas. Execution is a different skill set. Having command and control over your employees is a skill set. Ideation is something that some of us are born with and naturally flourish and develop. I happen to be uh, a master ideator and, and ideas come, you know, hourly sometimes. And mm. so uh, I love to share what that skill set looks like in practical sense um, uh, and from a strategic perspective with people in a particular you know, industry and area. Um, I'm also a purpose of mine is collaborative approach. Uh, I used to believe for a very long time, like many of us, that it was about competition. Um, you know, this is the day after the Super Bowl here in the US. And of course it was a wonderful competition, but in the end, after it's over, it's about cooperation and a collaborative approach to bring that, you know, to bring the, that, that presentation, all the moving parts that went into it. I studied collaboration from a very different perspective, um, natural disaster. You know, I spent some time in disaster mitigation and disaster preparedness and pre-pandemic, I mean, this is 10, 15 years ago. And it's amazing that those people that believe competition is the answer have rarely been involved in a hurricane or a fire, or a flood, or a tornado, where you're surrounded by your neighbors. I've got propane and a barbecue. You've got steaks and no electricity or power. I've got a tree across my property. You've got a chainsaw. Uh, we're both struggling. We're neighbors. We need to collaborate and cooperate in order to survive until help arrives. And that could be weeks in some areas. And so having an influence and understanding what the Red Cross is doing and what disaster preparedness companies do I felt that there was, there's gotta be a way to bring collaborative approach and the spirit of cooperation into corporations, right? Mm. It's not operations versus sales. It's not the front of the house versus the back of the house. There's a tribal culture, there's a team dynamic. 
And so part of my purpose is really about understanding how do we bridge and build a tribe where everybody together is going in the same direction? How do we elevate ourselves from a cooperative perspective? No, it's a, it's a lovely approach. And it, it's, it's always going to win collaboration over competition. And um, that's the essence of building great teams, because uh, I'm reading Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, which is about people who are givers and people who are takers. And then those who want equality between a bit of give and a bit of take. It's, it's a very interesting book. I haven't quite finished it yet, so I'm, I'm drawing some things. But this, this point about in some situations when it's very dog eat dog, one person can do well on their own as a taker. But often you need people to collaborate and give if a whole team is going to succeed or a nation's going to succeed. And that's perhaps where many of the Western countries are getting it very badly wrong at the moment. And it's all about what's in it for me. Um, going talking about sort of disasters and things that also affects people's health and well-being and all that goes on, and that's my next topic: health and well-being. Health question. You know, with that experience you had, where you were in a wheelchair, uh, your father at forty-four, sadly dying with that sudden cardiac arrest. You being very aware of that. You being growing up in that um, Jewish and um, sort of Sicilian upbringing about great food. Of course, if we just go for the Sicilian side and the uh, the blue zones, of course, they're famed, Sicily famed and Corsica and Sardinia with some of the, the longest living people. So it's very interesting, this whole area of epigenetics and that you are not necessarily defined by your genes. You can tweak those little bits above the genes by your lifestyle choices and what you eat how you exercise, uh, how you take stress out of your life and inflammation uh, and, and how you link with families and friends uh, and really look after the whole of yourself in, in everything. So I find that very interesting. What two tips would you give on physical health and on mental health that have um, that served you? Thank you. Um, I'll tie it up in one and it's adopt a dog, preferably, <laughs> preferably a Labrador or other form of retriever that commands, demands, and requires health and exercise. And so I uh, was blessed for my 40th birthday to be the recipient of a seven-month-old purebred American Labrador. Um, the individual who previously had them could no longer keep him. And so I found myself with uh, a dog that I was somewhat familiar with, but I see you <laughs> didn't realize that, uh, that in order to give him the life he deserved, I had to abide by his rules hmm. and fish swim, birds fly, dogs walk and they walk in a pack and they want an alpha and they want to know, are they safe? Who controls the food and who's my pack leader? And I read Cesar Milan's books and lot, took lots of other advice from people. And I said, I'm going to do something different. I had a goofy Labrador as a kid and she was fat and she only went out in the backyard to do her business and came back in the house. And that was not exercise. And so I made a conscious effort. This dog needs to be walked. So he's well-adjusted and calm in the home. And we did three day, three times a day, three walks a day, three, four, 5,000 steps per walk. And it, I found myself you know, feeling better. My hip felt better. My body felt better. I looked better. I had more stamina. He got, yeah, he, you know, he's been, he's 13 and a half years old now. And so I know that that has had an impact on him. So first number one rule for health wellness, you also added de-stress. Nothing says, uh, you've had a bad day and it'll be okay. Like the look of a Labrador retriever who knows nothing from stress and anxiety and self-reflection and doubt 
and pity. They just look at you with unconditional love. And it's wonderful to have that balance to come home to. Um, I suffer from anxiety. I, I, I suffered from those things. And so um, just like everybody else who's a top performer, you know, you always have self-doubt. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, Mind Valley. Uh, I got to meet Marissa Peer, who's a wonderful, wonderful uh, coach in her own right. And I got to study and understand what the I am enough movement is for mental health. And then, you know, figuring out that I am enough, you know, right here, right now at this moment in time, I don't need to do much more. It's a, it's a lovely connection between us. I think we mentioned it before, but when Lee and I got married uh, seven years ago, this, um, this April, um, we had as guests at the wedding, Marissa Peer and her husband, John. And uh, she did a bit of hypnosis on Harriet, my daughter. But this was in the early days, seven years ago, before she became really famous. Yeah. And, uh, and she was uh, great fun. And, yeah. uh, and John also with his Burning Man passions for going to those events. Uh, but uh, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah, know John. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's quite fun. No, I am enough. Uh, exactly as you are is a really important one. But it's lovely because I'm looking at Archie there, who's by my door, wanting to go out because there's a friend uh, visiting my wife who's got a little dog who he's desperately in love with. And we're just trying to decide at the moment he's coming up to two this year. And he's a working cocker and a really beautifully bred cocker spaniel. And yeah, he gets his two walks a day. And we have one of these contraptions, which has a, it's a plastic stick, which uh, propels a ball miles. And he will <laughs> run after it and run up all day long. He will not give up all day long. I think they say Labradors are born half trained and cocker spaniels die half trained. So, so perhaps I should, because uh, he likes the pack syndrome, uh, maybe we're thinking we should get another dog for, as company for him. I've often wondered about uh, a, a mate for him. Uh, but then you have three times the crisis in the house with mud and muck and stuff rather than just twice. But um, we'll see. What do you reckon about getting a second dog? Oh, without a doubt. If, if I could go over and do it again, uh, we had two cats in the house, two senior cats when we got Flynn. And so I thought it was going to be enough of a tumultuous experience. And it was. They, they never bonded, unfortunately. And they were the kings and he was, you know, when he got to 80, 90 pounds, he still couldn't get near them. All he wanted to do was kiss them and lick them and play with them. And all they wanted to do was eviscerate and kill him. Yeah. <laughs> it was a horrible experience for the cats for the five years that they all lived together. Um, but we would have gotten two dogs. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, you know, because they are pack animals and they do love that camaraderie. And there's so many, you know, adoptable dogs, whether they're senior dogs or whether they're you know, mutts and they just, they, they all deserve a home. I, I'm a big proponent of adopt, not shop. And so there's so many, although you and I both have just discussed our purebreds. I, I got mine, you know, you know, because we were helping out uh, uh, a military family who needed yeah. know, to go back into service. And so um, the, uh, the idea that, that giving him a mate would be a wonderful thing for you to discuss, but your own, your own personal uh, uh, housing situation has to take paramount. Yeah. <laughs> you're right and and in fact my my brother much to our surprise we didn't talk to each other at the time and he lives 40 minutes away um he'd also got a cocker spaniel at about a week difference from me we didn't know about this i think a friend of them uh gave a young puppy and she's now a bitch and so we're hoping at some stage to make the two of them and, and maybe keep one of the uh daughters uh to be to, to be company for archie um Going from health quotient to emotional uh, intelligence quotient, emotional and social intelligence, in all the work that you've done in so many different industries with so many successes and also some disasters which you've learned from, 
What would be your top tip about emotional intelligence? Common sense is not overrated. Um, I, 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 it started with kitchen sense for me, uh, which was a, uh, uh, an understanding of a sense of where people are and, and health and well-being and behind the line in the kitchen. You know, when you're playing with fire and, and knives and temperaments and attitudes in the kitchens of New York, you have to have a sense of common sense and understanding. That has followed me in every one of my businesses where it just, you seem to think it's overrated, but it's not, you know, really having a pragmatic approach to common sense. Most of the answers are available to us. Um, uh, I, I would think that that's probably one of the most underrated skill sets. Yeah, I think common sense is not common practice, as they say, and uh, never, never assume it. That's a good one. I like that one. CQ is the next one, cultural intelligence question. So the collect collective intelligence, but also this idea of diversity, equality, inclusion. What's been your tip as you grew up uh, uh, in Long Island, New York, uh, with that mixture of the Sicilian and the Jewish communities, and then you've met many different people from many different backgrounds. What, what, what advice would you give about really understanding difference and accepting it and, and including people? I love this question, truly. Because I grew up with an understanding, um, now granted my Sicilian grandfather uh, came to our lives before any of uh, me and my brothers were born, um, but I am not uh, of Sicilian blood. To me, that never mattered. And I grew up in a family where that didn't matter because I was, you know, taught us about pride and he brought us into his religion. You know, he was, he was a Catholic, um, put on a yarmulke and stood up at the bima during our bar mitzvah to read from the Torah with the rabbi and opened up the ark. You know, we, we, we had Christmas and Hanukkah parties. And so cultural diversity and an understanding that each, each one of us can practice our own religions, but our beliefs and, and what we do in life should be similar, um, was great as a foundation as a young child, right? Nothing was off limits. Um, but then I really believe it's summed up best by Mark Twain. And if I could read you a quote, it has to do with travel. And so Mark Twain said, um, travel is fatal to prejudiced bigotry and narrow-mindedness as many of our people need it sorely on these accounts broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. Brilliant. I love it. I you love have it. to travel. I have been, I have been blessed. Fabienne got an, a, a job um, later in her, in her life that she uh, didn't necessarily expect, but, but gravitated towards with Delta Airlines. And through her efforts and work at Delta Airlines, she wound up getting uh, uh, awarded non-rev travel, non-revenue generating or standby travel. And so we took full advantage of it. Uh, within the first year, we were spending, you know, two days or three day weekends traveling to Paris and Brussels and Nice and Morocco and Monaco and, and Barcelona and Malaga. And I have to tell you, Jonathan, um, we live in the greatest country on earth, period. Anybody that says differently just needs to go visit another country. And when you see economic depravity, at the level that some of these people are very happy living in. And when you see, you know, the shanty shacks in the road of Jamaica and you see the souks in, you know, in, in Marrakesh and you see uh, poverty in, in Istanbul, Turkey, and you see happiness combined with economic depravity, you recognize it's not the money that's going to make us happy. It's, it's our own, you know, it's our own situation, right? We, over, we overthink things in this country, as many developed countries do. But yeah. I would say travel is, travel is the most important thing. 
to, you, to add to a broad, well-rounded individual. You are you are spot on, Dan. And and once again, it's this this curiosity. Why is it that America, with all its wealth, is actually not the happiest country at all, as far as happiness? Um, and why is it that people in Mexico who are lower income are happier? There's a whole range of things that lead to happiness. But I, I love the simple difference between happiness and success. A quote someone said, which is, success is getting what you want. Happiness is wanting what you already have. And I think there's this drive for more and more material stuff, which, as you know, in your brand and marketing days, we have to be careful that we don't you know, I've got one Apple watch, that's fine. That's all I need. Why do I need three more watches? You know, this one does the job and, and, and enough of this, but, but, but almost we're made to feel and the whole marketing machine makes us feel that, that we will be happy when I get this or that product. And I think we just have to manage that carefully. Um, quick fire questions just on resilience. What would be your tip about coping with life and uh, the changes that happen to you. What's your tip on on resilience against challenges and uh, perhaps uh, what do they call obstacles? Um, it's never as bad as you think it is. Ninety nine percent of the story that you tell yourself is a lie and not true. It's never going to work out that way. So stop fooling yourself. Um, I think Brene Brown talks about this in one of her conversations about, you know, we tell ourselves these stories and they, ne they, they never turn out as bad as they are. Uh, aside from a physical modality, um, uh, everything else is, is fixable. Um, uh, even physical modalities are fixable as evidenced by me. Um, but for the most part, if, as long as it's not a medical challenge, um, you can dream bigger. You, you can look to the future with a level of positivity you know, yesterday's in the past for a reason, right? And I'm always a futurist. I'm always looking forward with a positive attitude because I've had the perspective of what a really shitty existence can look like. And I lived and wallowed in self-pity and, and anger and, and, and woe is me for as long as anyone should. And it didn't serve me. And yeah. so it's, it's really always, it's, it's really about asking for help and understanding it. Yeah, that's, that's a really good one, Dan. And, and next one, your favorite one, is brand quotient, the penultimate one of, of uh, the, the, the trip around the inspiring leadership compass of what makes people high performers. What have you learned from 360 and feedback? You've been on many of these courses. You probably, as a coach, you've done 360 with others. But what have you learned about yourself through 360? And, and what have you done to continue to grow and learn? Uh, I, I've learned that um, to, trust, to tr trust in myself, um, as long as I stay true to the tenets of humility and authenticity, and I'm not looking to impress for the sake of impressing someone, right? I stay true to myself, and that uh, uh, ideation for me um, rules the day. You know, formulating and coming up with ideas and then sharing them with others and letting them run with it uh, has been part of my personal brand. You know, I, I grew up with a team dynamic going all the way back to the earliest days of my restaurant where we ironed a T in the back of our chef's jacket to represent teamwork uh, to the understanding that, you know, I, I didn't play as we discussed earlier on many sports teams, but I do understand and appreciate sport. And they're all about, you know, a team dynamic versus individual accomplishment. And I think it's keeping that in the forefront of our minds um, that, that drives me today. How do I become, I may be a temporary member of your team. I may come in uh, to add a level of perspective, ideation, strategy, tactics, course correction, 
Um, uh, I may come in and, and, and teach you how to coach up or coach out individuals, which we'll talk about, but I'm still part of the team and yeah. I can assimilate very quickly. That's very good. And then legacy, what would you like your legacy to be in the work you do? Um, uh, the difference that you leave behind, the stewardship, leaving things better than you found it. And what about with um, uh, Fabian and your, your uh, two uh, children that you've uh, inherited? <laughs> I love that word. Um, yeah, the only two children uh, I will have, and I, I, I'm blessed. And it's funny how that world works, right? I wanted to, I would have had a boy and a girl. Uh, had I been blessed with my own, but I wound up with a, a beautiful boy and a beautiful girl uh, that were eight and 10 when I came into the relationship. And uh, uh, just to digress a bit, I would have named one after my father, Jerome, and I wound up with a Jeremy. I would have named one after my grandfather, Salvatore. I, I wound up with a Sarah. And so wow. fate is a funny way of giving us exactly what we didn't know we needed at the time. And so yeah, I get a little emotional there. Um, uh, uh, legacy is important. Um, uh, my, I would like some grandchildren <laughs> to impart some wisdom personally. I keep getting grandpuppies. My, both my children keep it, get, uh, adopting dogs. Um, and so we get to see them a lot, but I can't impart the knowledge and wisdom uh, <laughs> of what every old Jewish grandpa wants to do uh, to their grandchildren. And so I hope over the next few years, maybe sooner, <laughs> that there's some grandkids for me to leave a legacy to. Uh, professionally in work, I never worked. I never worried about legacy in work. Um, uh, I have lots of benchmarks and accolades and press clippings. They impressed me and they were important to me. Uh, I didn't really care what the world thought of me. But now I, I, I think it's just, um, you know, leaving a mark. Uh, I'm involved in the development of products and services. And so whether it's um, somehow being a part of something that leaves a lasting legacy, you know, we make an impact in the green movement with micromobility, or I'm involved in a new DeFi cryptocurrency platform that changes the way banking works, or I'm involved in an automotive project that moves you know, sustainability forward. Sure, that's a legacy, but not a solo endeavor. I think, it, I think I'd be much more proud looking back uh, from, the, from the next world. Uh, if I were to look back and say that I was part of something bigger, not as a solo accomplisher, but as a team. Yeah, and you talked about teams. Um, I, I'm interested in your experience of teams. Um, when you come across a, a team that's toxic, how have you made it high-performing? What's your top tip on, on turning around if there's an individual in there who's toxic or the team, the whole team's gone toxic? What have, what have you done to help them turn it around? It's a good question. Every team will have uh, those tumultuous challenges. Uh, uh, I've been involved in lots of them. Um, so first and foremost, I'm a big proponent of strength-based assessment and understanding everyone's strengths. Sometimes the toxicity comes from uh, an unknown um, divergence from an individual's strength that's not being identified, recognized, or appreciated. And so first identifying what your team is good at, and I use Gallup as a strength finder platform. I use strength-based assessment in my coaching practice so that we can start with a level set. What is everyone good at uh, on an individual basis? And then we see, is everyone in the right area? But if all that fails and we still wind up with a toxic individual and we've done our level best to coach them up through the ranks and provide them the necessary assistance, and we've exhausted human resources and stern warnings and then coaching, really coaching them personally and professionally, well, do them the favor, not just yourself, do them the favor of coaching them out and release them 
from the burden of being involved in something that obviously is toxic to them. And then they're manifesting that toxicity to the team. And so I, I'm a big proponent of firing people. Hell, I've fired clients when there's been a toxic client relationship and we're just not working together. I have fired them from me because it's, it's what's in my best interest. And in the end, it's in, it's in their best interest. Yeah. So I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's a really good point you make. And as one of my CEOs said, it, you know, I help them find their happiness elsewhere because it's we've tried our best here and it's just not working. And time and again, when that person moves on, the whole of the team lifts its game. It's almost like it, it, it's not a psychologically safe environment. But when they make the move and that person's gone, everything changes for everyone. And that person often performs better somewhere else. And in some cases they don't. They're a, they're a serial white collar psychopath or what I call the dark triad of uh, the narcissist plus um, the psychopath plus uh, the Machiavellian traits. And, and they will always be little evil bastards, as my old Sergeant Major would say. And uh, there's, a, there's a special place in hell reserved for them. Um, top, um, your, your favorite book, your top favorite book. It, which book have you uh, read recently that you think is well worth recommending to everybody who's listening? And what was it that was so good about it, Dan? Thank you. Uh, by the way, in your previous comment, I see you've known some of my past business partners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <as> a triad. <laughs> 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 um, uh, so uh, books. I, like you, um, not because of dyslexia, but simply because of some internal, internal boredom and clock, wasn't a reader. Um, I didn't necessarily pick up the book as a child and say, I love to disappear into the pages. But once I discovered Audible and it was because of a client, we were working on branding and marketing his books and we were seeking reviewing and interviewing orators or narrators for his book. I discovered Michael Kramer and Michael Kramer in the Audible system is one of the most well-respected orators. And then I backed into what Michael Kramer was reading on behalf of his clients, I think the guy gets paid you know, $10,000 to read your book or something. I found Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference. Yes. And I, but I didn't read the book. I listened to Michael Kramer. Because if you listen to Chris Voss, uh, nothing against the guy. He's one of the best negotiators in the world. I highly recommend the book. And I've integrated a lot of the phraseologies into conflict resolution and discussion. Seems like, looks like, sounds like, and so forth. But Michael Kramer, the way he reads the book and the tempo and the tender of his voice and the inflection, the way he draws you into the book, I was sold. And I'm, I'm on there hunting for books that he may have read so that my absorption of the knowledge and information is both pleasurable and knowledgeable simultaneously. Mm. Second to that, I would highly recommend. By the way, send, send me the list of the books he's read because I'm the same. I like to listen oh. to someone who, who's yeah. read them well. And, and I loved Never Split the Difference by Chris. Uh, there are there, there are definitely people that don't take their own advice. Publishers will tell you if you don't have the gift of oration, right, and understand tempo and tender, and really been schooled and trained with the proper microphone, don't read your own stuff. Pa pay someone to read it. That's their job. That's not your strength. Your strength was maybe imparting the knowledge. Find someone else's strength. And I have lost and jettisoned myself from books. Um, there's there's a couple others. Uh, anything with the title "unfuckwithable" <laughs> gravitate towards me. Um, because I have felt that since I was 16 years old. And so any book, uh, I think um, uh, Lindsay Manfredi has one, you know, how to be unfuckwithable. You know, it's really just about dropping the shield of the things that we put in front of us to defend ourselves from things that will hurt us and just be ourselves, but also have this, this understanding of who we are. 
Fantastic. Thanks, Dan. And we're at the final stage now, which is the two minute top leadership tip. Um, and then when you've said that, we'll uh, we'll wrap up. Um, but Dan, would you just briefly, as you did at the beginning, introduce yourself, say who you are and the work you do, and then give us your two minute leadership top tip. Over to you. Hi, again, my name is Dan Ziegler, and I'm the CEO and founder of YCDB. It's a coaching platform and a consulting service fractured into two sections. You can do better and you can dream bigger, really about the understanding of what ideation and strategy and tactics can do for you in business. Think of me more of a tactical sparring partner for your business before the main event, the birth of a brand, the relaunch of a, of a restaurant, uh, the understanding of a service. Uh, and my top tip <laughs> is twofold. One of them is how to provide a level of care and, and genuinely displaying caring and concern when you require a customer to take money out of their pocket for your product or service is an underrated skill. And so I'll say it again, genuinely display care and concern. And it's time and time again that we fail to measure up to the expectations of our customers who all they wanna do is buy our product and service. And my second top tip is important. Uh, anyone that has an individual in your organization that is public facing, that is under the age of 40, please root out the phrase, no problem. It is being used ad nauseum and it is driving guys like me crazy. No problem is not the answer to, may I have a refill of root beer, please? May I have some extra towels for my room? May I, you know, can you show me where the bathroom is? Can I get this in a larger size? No problem is not the answer. With pleasure, my pleasure, with, uh, with pleasure, thank you, of course, but not no problem because it really is a problem and it's become an endemic and I see it in my coaching practice. And so those are my top two tips. Hakuna Matata, as they say, <laughs> in, uh, in uh, Kenya. But look, uh, great tips. Thank you, Dan. And it's been lovely having you on the Inspiring Leadership Series. Thank you for sharing your wisdom, your experience, and I'm sure you'll continue to be a great asset to many people who are fortunate to work with you. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you gonna do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you. <laughs>